Back in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 11, we're going to cover the whole chapter today, Lord willing. We'll see how things go. Let's thank the Lord for his word. Lord, we just thank you that we can get into your word today. And Jesus, we just want to remind ourselves that it's all about you. It's all about you and who you are and what you have done and what you will do. And we ask the Holy Spirit, you would increase faith in this place today. We see that Joshua and the Israelites, they encountered tremendous battles. And through you, by you, because of you, Lord, they were victorious. And in our lives, we've got battles. And you've been training our hands for warfare for a long time now in the book of Joshua. And this is really kind of the last battle chapter here. And so we're just asking that, Lord, you'd give us the victory. Some of us, we just need perseverance. It's been a long time in the midst of the battle, a long time struggling against sin and the enemy and whatever other trials have come our way. And we're asking today for perseverance for those, Lord, and that they would receive encouragement from your word. And Lord, some of us, we identified giants a long time ago, but we've never really dealt with them. And there's still some giants in the land of our Christianity. We ask that you'd help us to get the victory today, Lord. We're not looking for it tomorrow. How about today, Lord? How about victory today over those giants, those kings of sin in our lives, those things that seek to dominate us and rule over us, those things that we've identified as wrong, we hate to do, but we continually do. Lord, have mercy on us. Jesus, you came to deliver us from the power of sin. And positionally speaking, it is already true. But practically now, Lord, we ask that you would uh, make those things real in our lives. That we just begin to walk in newness today, walk in victory today. That Jesus, we would just even begin to proclaim it right now in our own hearts so that we can get the victory over those things. We don't want to admit defeat where we are not called to be defeated. And Jesus, you are the king. When you lead us into battle, you lead us in for victory. You don't lead us into places of defeat. You meet us in our places of brokenness and failure and you make all things brand new and beautiful. You open up a door of hope in the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble. You are good and awesome King and Savior. Come and work in our midst, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you breathe life into us today? The enemy would love us to be feeling dead and oppressed, but you came that we might have life and life more abundantly, Jesus. So Holy Spirit, come and minister the life of God to us. Bless this time in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's start looking in Joshua chapter 11. We're just going to read the first three verses and we'll talk about a few things. It says in verse 1, Then it came about when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of it, that he sent Jobab, king of Madon, and the king of Shimron, and to the king of Achstaff, or whatever, and to the kings who were of the north in the hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland on the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanite on the east and the west, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Jebusite in the hill country, and the Hivite at the foot of Hermon, and the land of Mizpah. Okay, that's a mouthful, those verses. Let me just break it down for you a little bit here. You'll remember that in chapter 10, the southern conquest was completed. Let's review the military strategy of Joshua. 
Joshua entered the land of Canaan with the Israelites by crossing through the Jordan, the Lord holding the waters of the Jordan back that they might cross over. And they crossed over just in the region of Jericho there. And, and the, the strategy was, as soon as they crossed over, to embark upon a central campaign. That is, they were going to start in the lowlands near the Jordan River and get some victory there, conquer some cities there, move up into the foothills, get some victories there, up into the high mountains, and then across central land of Canaan, effectively cutting the land in Canaan in half. The old adage, divide and conquer, you know what I mean. And so now they were very successful in the central campaign and they cut Canaan in half. And then they had that wonderful opportunity to confront the armies of the south in chapter 10. And we study that at length. And so if we want to just look at our map to review, to uh, find out where we are, here's the Dead Sea down here, Sea of Galilee up here, Jordan River running through here. And they crossed over right about here at the area of Gilgal. Okay, that's where they crossed over. And then they had the, the uh, battle here at Jericho. And then up at Ai up here. And they dealt with this pe- these people right in this region. Central campaign. And then all these southern kings came against Israel. And that's what we saw in chapter 10. That miraculous victory. Now what we see is that a king way up here, Jabin of Hazor, way up here north of the Sea of Galilee, the ancient name for the Sea of Galilee is Chinneroth. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 2, excuse me. So this king way up here heard about what God was doing through Israel way down here. And he began to call together a remnant of kings from down here, kings in the northern region and kings to the east of the Jordan River to form once again a conglomeration of nations that would come against Israel. And so he sends word, hey, Israel is in the land and they're beating everybody up and now they're going to turn to the north and so we better get our act together. And so that's what we see in the first three verses. They're getting themselves together to come against Israel. Now look in verses 4 and 5. And they came out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. So all of these kings, having agreed to meet, came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Now the waters of Merom, that's a little lake located north of the Sea of Galilee. So we're way in the northern regions now. And all these people are camped together to come against Israel. Notice what it says there. It says that there were as many people as the sand that is on the seashore. Hyperbolic language there. Exaggeration to make a point. Uh, We're we're tipped off to that by it says the people were as. Okay, They were like. It's an analogy. It's hyperbolic language. There were so many people. It was almost innumerable. They were like the sand that is on the seashore. And notice that it says that this enemy, who were very many people, a whole lot of people coming together against Israel, they had very many horses and chariots. The ancient Jewish uh, historian Josephus says that they had about 20,000 chariots, 100,000 horses, and 300,000 foot soldiers. For an ancient army, that was tremendous. The fact that they had 20,000 chariots and 100,000 horses, do you know how many chariots and horses Israel had? They didn't have any. So they were facing an enemy that had been entrenched in that land for a long time. It was their home turf. They had great numbers and they had weapons that the Israelites did not have. 
Now that would seem intimidating at first, wouldn't it? But let's remind ourselves of Psalm 20 verse 7. Some boast in chariots and some boast in horses. But we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Now when we come against our enemy, it may seem, who's our enemy? Satan. We do not wage war against flesh and blood, but it's against powers and principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. Amen? So Satan is our enemy. When we come against our enemy, it may seem that he has resources that we don't have. I mean, he's been around for a long time, thousands of years, and he's got these invisible little demon dudes. Some people see them, but that's a different sermon. But generally speaking, these invisible little demon dudes, and they've been around for so long, and they've got certain supernatural resources that are available to them. And it would seem that the Christian might be intimidated when coming up against the enemy. We need to know we can't mince words. The enemy hates us. And if the enemy can't get to Jesus Christ, he'll try to mess with his wife, the bride of Christ, the church. Let me tell you something right now. You mess with my wife, I'm going to take care of you. You mess with my woman in any way, shape, or form, I'm going to handle you. I'm going to manhandle you. The enemy can't get to the Lord. So he goes after what the Lord loves most. That's you and I. Jesus said, let's not mess around. John chapter 10, verse 10. Satan came to kill and steal and destroy. But I came that you might have life and life more abundantly. Now the evidence of Satan working in our world is plain. It's obvious to see. You need only look in our own community. You need only look at the youth. You just got to visit the high school for a little while. You just got to remember your own time in high school for a little while. You just got to look at the condition of marriages in our community. Broken homes. You just got to look what's going on with methamphetamines in our community. You just got to look at what's going on with sexual promiscuity in the youth in our community. You just got to look at what's going on with the unbelievable attraction that the youth have toward witchcraft in our community. And the results of these things in any community It's evident that the God of this world, lowercase g, Satan, comes to kill and steal and destroy. But our King, Jesus Christ, came that we might have life and life more abundantly. And He redeems us from the hand of the enemy. And He is the conquering King. Now the enemy will come against you with everything that he has. Remember that when Pharaoh let God's people go out of Egypt... He changed his mind shortly thereafter and he began to pursue Israel with everything that he had. All of his armies, all of his horses, all of his chariots. He went after Israel with everything that he had. And Israel was between a rock and a hard place, so to speak. They had the Red Sea before them and all the armies of Pharaoh behind them. And they had just been slaves for 400 years. They didn't know how to fight. They didn't have any weapons. They didn't have any resources. Some boast in chariots. Some boast in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord, our God. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch forth your staff. And he parted the Red Sea. Now, some people like to say, it wasn't actually the Red Sea. God didn't really do that. It was a place called the Sea of Reeds. It was the Reed Sea, very shallow, just about three feet deep or so. 
And what happened was there was a great wind and it just pushed back the water a little bit so that Israel could walk across and they all crossed there and it wasn't really this miraculous thing. Okay, wait a minute. You want to think that that's fine, but don't forget the end of the story. That all of Pharaoh's armies drowned in that sea. So what's a bigger miracle? That God parted the Red Sea and Israel went through? Or that God drowned Pharaoh and his armies in the Reed Sea that was only three feet deep? (laughs) You just can't escape the fact that our God is a miraculous God. It is in your face. You can't deny it without denying the very word of God. Some boast in chariots, some boast in horses, but we will boast in the name our Lord of our Lord, our God. And, and they, they didn't have those weapons. But do not the scriptures say that no weapon formed against us shall prosper because of who our king is? And I'm sure that these armies of the northern conglomeration were bold with their iron and their chariots and their horses. Some trust in those things physical might and strength and resources. But the Christian trusts in the Lord. And there's a key dichotomy between Christians and non-Christians. We're all sinners. Christians are saved by grace. But Christians are called to trust in the Lord and not in material wealth or resources. It's not a sin to have those things and God might bless you wonderfully with those things. But don't set your heart upon those things. For where your heart, there your, where your heart is, there your treasure is. And our treasure is to be Jesus Christ. And when you're laying on your deathbed, all the money in the world won't save you. No chariots, no horses, no resources. Jesus Christ has got to be where we put our trust in this life and in the life to come. Some boast in horses and chariots, but not the people of God. It says in the second part of Psalm 20, verse 7, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. When it says boast, it means that we put our hope in. I want us to just think about our daily lives. Is that a daily reality for you and I? So often it's just a safety net. When things get really bad, okay, I guess there's nothing left to do now but pray. We're just going to have to trust the Lord. And so often we picture God as a last resort or a life vest, or a life preserver. You know what I mean? Or a bilge pump, whatever it is, a last resort. He's none of those things. He is first and foremost. He is to be our everything. He's the strength of our life today. And and I have discovered that when you put your daily life in the hands of the king, that things are awesome. Can I get a witness or two? Things are wonderful, even when things are horrible. Even when your heart seems to be failing. When your heart seems to be breaking. When your finances are crumbling. When cars are crashing. If your life is placed securely in the hands of the king, well then there's hope. We don't grieve as those who have no hope. I did a funeral this week. Non-Christian family who had a Christian son who died. And I got to tell them, you, you need to realize... That if you have Jesus Christ, you don't grieve as those who have no hope. And I I read to them the passage from 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture of the church, where we'll be united with our loved ones. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up in the sky to meet the Lord in the sky. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. We don't despair like those who don't have Jesus Christ. 
And that's our greatest witness in the world is when our lives are gnarly and we say, but praise the Lord. Amen. That's our greatest witness in the world. When you suddenly lose your job and those near you hear you saying, hey, I'm just trusting Jesus. I'm just praising God in this situation. And then they see the victory of the Lord. That's the greatest witness. It's easy to praise the Lord when everything in your life is awesome. I do that all the time. But when things are crumbling, when health is failing, those are the times where the rubber meets the road. Psalm 20 verse 6 says, Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer from His holy heaven with the saving strength of His right hand. I love the faith of the psalmist. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. You've got to believe that the Lord is absolutely faithful in times of difficulty. And here comes this conglomeration of nations, the enemy, with all of his resources. We don't boast in anything other than the name of the Lord our God. And I want you to know a neat little fact here, or a neat little insight perhaps, that it said that the enemy had as many people as the sand that is on the seashore. But let's counter that with Psalm 39, verses 17 through 18, where the psalmist writes, How precious also are thy thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. They would outnumber the sand! So for every soldier that the enemy had, God had multiple good thoughts toward his people. For every resource that the enemy had, God's good thoughts and plans for his people outnumber the schemes of the enemy. Amen? That's a glorious truth. I love that truth. That's ministered to me so much this week. Because I need to tell you, the enemy comes against me with everything that he's got. Sometimes it feels overwhelming. But I call to mind that for every weapon the enemy comes against me with, God's thoughts of goodness toward me outnumber them. And that he will stretch forth his righteous right hand from heaven and save his anointed. We've got to believe. Isaiah 26, verses 3 through 4. The steadfast of mine, thou wilt keep in perfect peace because he trusts in thee. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. The rock who is higher than I. In difficult times, lead me to the rock who is higher than I. Notice, the steadfast of mind that will keep in perfect peace. Not in a degree of peace. Not in some sort of peace. Not in just acceptable peace, but in perfect peace. As Philippians 4 says, peace that surpasses comprehension. Peace that is beyond our understanding. It doesn't come from the fact that we understand the situation. You see, this is where the peace of God is made so resonant in our lives. is when we are lacking understanding. His peace is peace that is beyond understanding. Generally speaking, from the secular mind, apart from Jesus Christ, we have peace when we understand things. Peace comes to the secular mind when the secular mind is in control. I've got my hands on the situation. I feel in control, so I feel at rest and in peace. Not for the Christian. We don't need to be in control. We let Jesus Christ be in control of our lives. And when we fix our hope upon Him, and our mind is steadfast or steady or firm or consistent in that, then He keeps us in perfect peace. Peace that is beyond 
comprehension. It doesn't come from the fact that we do understand. It comes regardless of the fact that we do not understand. Oh man, that's a good thing. Because I don't understand everything that happens in this world. And, and I, I'm a pastor and I've been studying the Bible every single day of my life now for over a decade. And I still don't understand why things unfold the way that they unfold. But I understand one thing. Jesus is my king. And when I fix my hope on him, he will keep me in perfect peace. It's when I get my eyes off Jesus Christ that things get a little bit hairy. When, G- when Peter had his eyes fixed on Jesus, he walked on water. And then it said, he, he, he looked at the wind and the waves and he noticed how gnarly the circumstances were and he began to sink down in that water. You get your eyes set on circumstances alone, you're, you're going to sink into those things. They're, they're overwhelming, they're gnarly. We live in a gnarly, God-rejecting world and I got news for you, the Bible says it's going to get worse before he comes. It's going to get worse. It's going to be more deception more rejection of Jesus Christ in these last days. If you don't have your eyes fixed on the author and the perfection of your faith, it gets tough just to get up in the morning sometimes. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I got to open my eyes and put my eyes on Jesus. First thing in the morning, just fix my gaze on Jesus Christ because he is an everlasting rock. Now let's look at verse 6. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Joshua, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow at this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Merom and attacked them. So the Lord encourages Joshua. Obviously, he's encouraging Joshua because Joshua is afraid. We've seen this many times in the book of Joshua. But I'd never get over it. It's just wonderful. The Lord is our encourager. Whenever we're afraid, open up the Bible and let the Lord speak to you. Go to Jesus when you're afraid. He always encourages. He encourages Joshua here. But, but then don't forget this next part. Joshua received the word of the Lord. Hey, Joshua, don't be afraid because of them. Tomorrow, you're going to hamstring their horses and you're going to burn their chariots. So, so what does Joshua do? He attacks them immediately. That's what I like. He goes on the offensive. He responds to the word of God right away. The, word encourage, the Lord encourages him with his word, and he acts upon it. So many times we get the word of the Lord, and we do nothing. How many times have you been to church? A lot of times. How many times has the Lord spoken to you at church? And in a moment, during an hour-long sermon, and during the music afterwards, you're saying, I've got to make some changes. The Lord has spoken to me. The Lord is moving in my life. The Lord has encouraged me. And then you leave, and you do nothing different. That's called being a hearer of the Word. And James chapter 1 says, those that just hear the Word and do nothing about it, they delude themselves. But you see, we're to be doers of the word, not merely hearers of the word. And this is why Joshua is so successful as a man. Because when God spoke, he responded. When God spoke, he responded. He did something with the revelation given to him. And that's why he was able to stay in a usable place with the Lord. He had failures. We've seen some failures that he had. He was deceived by the Gibeonites. He made some bad calls. But the Lord is merciful and gracious and kind and compassionate and able to restore 
and the Lord restored. But the basic tone in the tenor of Joshua's life was he would get in over his head, he would get afraid, the Lord would speak to him, and he would obey the Lord. And in that comes a pattern of victory. Now we're going to see in a minute that the victory did not always happen immediately. More time has transpired in the book of Joshua than you might think. But he was a doer of the word and it yielded results in his life. We're going to talk about in a minute that we've got to persevere in those things. But what I like about the Lord said to Joshua is, Joshua, those things that are most threatening to you, the horses and the chariots, is where you're going to have your greatest victory. I love that. Those things that seem most threatening to you is where you're going to have your greatest victory. Because the enemy loves to intimidate us. See if anybody can identify with me. Satan speaks certain things to me sometimes, trying to intimidate me about ways that he suggests I'm going to fail as a father and a husband and a pastor. His main tactics are intimidation and fear. And so he will come against me with these weapons or these thoughts or these possibilities or these suggestions and they terrify me. I know if I fail in that way, the destruction is going to be widespread. And I go to the Lord with those things and the Lord says, don't be afraid of him. That thing that is most intimidating to you, I'm going to give you your greatest victory in that area. You're going to hamstring those horses and you're going to burn those chariots. That's our God. He takes us from strength to strength and glory to glory. You have your biggest weakness, your biggest fear, your greatest intimidation. Take it to Jesus Christ and he'll make it your greatest victory. That's who the Lord Jesus is. That's what he does in life. Don't tell me otherwise. That's what he does. That's who he is. And if we'll pursue after him with everything that is within us, we will see the victory of the Lord. Now look in verse 8. The Lord makes good on his word. It says, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they defeated them and pursued them as far as the great Sidon, as far as that place in the valley of Mizpah to the east. And they struck them until no survivor was left in them. Now look at verse nine, very important. And Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Now notice two things. Notice that the Israelites were the ones who did the attacking. Remember in verse 7, they went on the attack. Preemptive strike there. They, they went on the attack. The Israelites did the attacking, but it was the Lord who did the winning. Remember, and the Lord has spoken this to us many times, that the weight of the battle always depends upon the Lord. The battle is the Lord's, the victory is His. But He doesn't operate apart from us. He operates through us. And so Israel won on the attack, but the Lord delivered the enemy into their hands. It speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says about his ministry when, when uh, the Corinthians had their eyes too much on the men of God and not enough on the God of men. Paul writes to them and says, hey, listen, I just planted. Apollos, he just watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. They're one and the same. They're just like one another. But each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. It's God that does the work. And so it's God that gets the glory. 
Oftentimes people come, you know, and they, they, they enjoy what the Lord is doing here at Reality. And, and so they begin to heap praise on me or someone else on the staff. And they begin to say, oh, you're doing awesome things and this and that and the other. And I got to look them in the eye and say, I am so thankful for your encouragement. But let's just make sure that we both know it's Jesus. If anything good is happening, it's Jesus Christ. It's his church. It was his blood. It's his cross. It's his kingdom. It's his glory. We're just fellow workers. I'm just an unprofitable slave doing what I was told to do. But I got to tell you, when you do what Jesus tells you to do, stuff happens. It's when you remain in a place of intimidation and fear and you don't do anything, then nothing happens. You got to step out in faith once in a while. You got to get out the boat. Say, Lord, what do you want to do? Let's do it. A little watering, a little planning. I was just talking about this with my dad the other day. Someone that my dad's been witnessing to for almost 20 years. And the guy hasn't gotten saved yet. He's been praying for him and sharing the Lord with him. But it's God who causes the growth. And some plant, some water, some harvest. But it's God's harvest. And it's God that causes the growth. But we've got to be faithful to plant, to sow, and to water. There may be someone at your workplace, you sit next to them every day. Just pray for them. Just start to pray for them. Their very existence might be like fingernails on a chalkboard to you. Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Watch what the Lord does when you start to pray for somebody every day. Watch what the Lord does in your own heart and in their life. Does anybody in this house believe that prayer changes things? Let me see your hands. Start to pray for somebody every day that you're near to and watch what happens. Why don't you pick just the nastiest dog you know? Just nasty. Just that person never gets saved. Just no chance, no way, no how. Just start to pray for that person. What, what do I pray? Just pray blessings over their lives. But they don't deserve them. That's why they're called blessings. A blessing by definition is undeserved. A wage is earned. A blessing is undeserved. Just start to pray, pray blessings over their lives. You'll be amazed to find that God is already working in their life. All that you'll be doing is joining in that work. Wasn't God working in your life before you got saved? Wasn't he doing something in you? Somebody came along and preached the gospel to you and you said, that's it, that's what I've been looking for because the Holy Spirit had been drawing you. The Holy Spirit had been working. You'll find that when you begin to pray blessings for that person, God is already working in their lives. You're just joining in that work. You understand what I'm saying? So, Mark 16, 20. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Second thing I want you to see there in verse 9 is that Joshua did as the Lord had told him. Hold that thought now. Now, hold that thought. Joshua did just what the Lord told him to do. Now in verses 10 through 14 are the details of them capturing the cities, okay? But I want to draw your attention to verse 15. Verse 15 says, 
Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. That's a very important point. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Let me just say this. God's work done God's way will never lack God's blessing. He did things God's way. And so he experienced the power of God and the blessings of God and the moving of God. Remember in Joshua chapter 1, Joshua was given by the Lord the uh, recipe for success. It says in verse 8 of Joshua 1, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do, careful to do, according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. And so Joshua took that to heart. And he really was careful to do all that the Lord told him. The Lord said, tomorrow you're going to hamstring the horses and burn the chariots. And so when that time came, Joshua didn't have to say, well, what do I do? He knew what to do. Hamstring the horses and burn the chariots. You see, the problem with many Christians, it's not that we don't know what to do. We usually know the right thing to do. It's just that we're unwilling to do it. People come to the pastoral staff all the time for counseling. And they'll lay out their problems, uh, their quagmire, their quandary, their situation. They lay it all out there. And, And then they want us to give them the answer. But what I've discovered is that most of the time, they already know the answer. They're just unwilling to do it. And that's made a big mess in their life. And so they, they, they want us to clean up the mess. We can't clean up the mess, man. And, and so when they come, oftentimes they lay out this problem and, and, and what we'll say is, so what do you think you should do? I'm telling you, almost every single time they know exactly what the scripture is saying what they ought to do. It is a small percentage of time where they have no idea, where they literally, I don't know, what does the Bible say? And that's awesome. Then we tell them what the Bible says and usually it's that person that says, thank you, God bless you, see you later. And they go and they do it. You see, the disconnect is usually not that we don't know what to do. It's just that we're just unwilling to do it for whatever reason it is. But I want to remind us of this fact as it says in 1 John chapter 5. The commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, which is easy and light. When a rabbi said yoke, the idea there was my, my system of teaching, my theology. Take my yoke upon you, it's easy and light. You see, the yoke of the uh, previous rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees was heavy. It was all about you have to obey the law or this and that and the other. But Jesus came along with grace and mercy and love and the power of the Holy Spirit. And the commandments of the Lord then for us are not burdensome because we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. What is burdensome is disobedience. Don't you understand? That's what's burdensome. It seems easier in the moment oftentimes to disobey the Lord. It's a path of least resistance. That's why a river is never a straight shot. It sort of meanders through a valley. Why? Because when water first started to go, it naturally looks for the path of least resistance. If it comes up against some rock, it just kind of gets siphoned off this way, hits a soft spot, goes there, another soft spot, and just kind of meanders. And then you have this crooked thing. In so many Christians' lives, they look like that. It's this crooked walk. They haven't fastened their hands to the plow to plow a straight line with Jesus Christ. 
They're looking for the path of least resistance and it seems easier in the moment to disobey the Lord, but that brings destruction. The commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. I found that when I'm the least burdened is when I'm being the most obedient. And when I feel the heaviest and the most oppressed and weighed down is when I'm in rebellion to the Lord. Can I get a witness of two or three or four? We know that to be true. That the Lord would help us to do that. Let's just pause at this moment in the sermon and just pray for a moment. Lord, we know this to be a great truth. That in your commandments, in your instructions are life. And that if we're careful to observe them, we will have uh, success in this Christian life. And we will prosper in this Christian life. We know this to be true. We see it working in the book of Joshua. But so often we choose not to obey. In little things and in some really big, messy things. Lord, we just ask right now that you'd help us. We want to pause for a moment. And we want to say together corporately, Lord, help us. Holy Spirit, empower us for a new level of obedience in our Christian lives. We agree with this truth. Satan wants to come along and say, oh, don't do that. Don't obey the Lord. That's too hard. That's too difficult. That's too costly. We want to break partnership with that lie of the devil. We don't agree with that. We identify that as a lie and we cast that down in Jesus' name. We destroy that lofty speculation that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And we agree today that it is right and good and brings life to obey. So we ask the Holy Spirit, you'd help us. In our individual little areas, you know each one. We need help. We want to be doers of the word. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now in verse 16, just the first phrase. Thus Joshua took all the land. Thus Joshua took all the land. That is the land of Canaan. Verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. Now, when it says that Joshua took the whole land, it doesn't mean that they were yet necessarily possessing every nook and cranny. It just meant that they've broken the power structure of the land. They've defeated the primary kings and kingdoms and cities of the land. Enough so that they'll divide the land into inheritances in the next chapter. But then in chapter 13, we read this, verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and very much of the land remains yet to be possessed. So what it means when it says they took all the land was that they were now the governing rule, so to speak. They had broken the power structure. They were now the ones in power and they divide the land into an inheritance among the various tribes. But then they had to go in and possess every single nook and cranny. And they never did lay hold of every single bit of it. But that's what it means. Okay? They, they've just gotten that basic victory over the enemy now. And now they just got to begin to walk in it. Now I love what it says in the, verse part, the last part of verse 23. Thus the land had rest from war. Finally. This has been a bloody 11 chapters of the book of Joshua. And this was probably the bloodiest battle they'd have. As you study it and you think about what they're up against in horses and horses, this is probably the gnarliest, bloodiest battle that they would have had. But finally now, the wars are done and the land has rest. Look what it says in verse 18 though. There's some insight here. 
Verse 18, Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. How long was it? Well, from the time they crossed the Jordan until now has been seven years. It doesn't seem that long because we've studied it in just 19 short Bible studies. But 17 or seven years, excuse me, that they've been at war. Think about that. Seven years that they've been engaged in the battle. And now there's victory. There's rest. There's peace. I want you to just take note of two very important things for our lives. Number one, it was Joshua's careful obedience that brought rest and peace. We already talked about that, but I just want to make sure you get that down as a point. It was his careful obedience. I might, I might choose this word and just change it a little bit. It was his consistent obedience that now brought rest and peace. Obedience always brings rest and peace, as we just spoke of. The commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. But over a long period of time, I've had a lot of people come to me and say, I tried it God's way, it didn't work. I understand what you're saying, and there's just no way around this, but the Christian life requires perseverance. It's a battle. And a battle, by definition, requires some perseverance. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a battle, it'd be a party. It's a battle. Perseverance. Consistency over time. Abraham had to wait 25 years for the promise of the son. Moses was shepherding the sheep for 40 years before God entrusted him with his ministry. That would have been 40 years of just doing what the Lord told him to do. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Paul retreated to the desert for 14 years. We see in the Bible with the great men of God, great lengths of time in which they had to persevere in obedience to have great outcomes in the battle. But we've been trained by this world system to be very short-sighted to be very temperamental, to be very demanding of having these things in the here and now, right now. I want it all to be better now. That's just not reality. That is a rapture of the church, but we don't know when that happens. Our call is to occupy until the Lord comes, to persevere, to stand firm, to hold ground. Now, in Joshua eleven twenty one. Along these same lines, look what it says. Then Joshua came at that time to cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. By the way, this is the first time that the land of Canaan is ever called Israel. (laughs) Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. So the Anakim were the race of giants that so terrified the spies at Kadesh Barnea about 45 years earlier. Look at how thorough Joshua is here in obeying the Lord. He says, okay, we've got control of the land now, but let's go take care of those giants. And he went and he took care of those giants, those giants that were such an intimidating factor previously. He goes to the regions that were within their control and he takes care of those giants. This really helped me to think through my life this week. I just started to kind of take stock of my life anew and and, and just ask the Lord, ask the Holy Spirit, are there any giants in my life that I haven't dealt with yet? Because you'll remember, 
about 15 Bible studies ago or so that, that I asked you guys to identify the giants in your life and that we were going to slay them by the help of the Lord. You've got to identify them first. If you can't see them, you can't kill them. Just those giants of sin that so easily entangle us. And you know what? I, I realized that there was a giant that I hadn't dealt with yet. It just busted me this week. Britt, what about this? Oh. Ooh. I'm not going to tell you all what it is. <laughs> but it's a giant. And the Lord said, Britt, it's, it's time to deal with this. And I, I took great encouragement from Joshua, who was so thorough in the cleansing of the land. Went and said, okay, those giants that terrified my people Israel 45 years earlier, those giants that caused us to wander in the wilderness for 38 years, it was because of those giants and their lack of faith in dealing with them that they wandered in the wilderness. Some of you got these giant sin issues that have caused you to wander in the wilderness for so long. Isn't it time to get control of that? Isn't it time by the grace of God and the power of the cross to slay that giant? I mean, why not today be the day? What do you come to church for? What are you doing here? If you don't come to let the Spirit of God change your life, what are you doing here? Nobody's keeping track of your attendance. You're not earning brownie points in heaven for showing up. What are you doing here? I'm here because I want my life changed. I want less sin, more Jesus. And so maybe you can take stock like I've done this week and just say, are there any big giants in the land that I still need to deal with? Well, Lord just showed me another one for my own life. Oh, wow. Okay, praise the Lord. <laughs> I'm going to deal with that at the end. I'm going to come get on my face and do business with the Lord. <laughs> but for Joshua, it was doing the right thing consistently that brought peace and rest to the Israelites. That consistency, that perseverance. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. Joshua, and here's the last point, was required to persevere. Seven years of battle. Seven years of consistent obedience until he saw the fullness of victory. I just want to end right there because I want to go into a time of reflecting for, before the Lord on that. Let us not lose heart in doing good for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. That's a promise of God that you could stand on today. And some of you are a little bit weary in doing the right thing. Come and ask the Lord for strength today. Come to the prayer team. We've reorganized our sanctuary a little bit this morning. Prayer team's now going to be over here. Just felt like we needed more room for praying. So prayer team's going to be over here to your left. If you need help today, come get help. Listen, I got two giants that I'm dealing with right now. I want to get a little bit of victory in my life today. Have you got any? Have you got any? Okay, cool. I thought I was the only one that sinned. I thought you were the most righteous church on the face of the earth. I was going to go somewhere else. Okay, but we're all sinners. Yeah. Saved by grace. Yeah. We agree that the word of God is right. Yeah. We want to obey. Yeah. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Let's stand and ask for the Holy Spirit to come upon us. Let's stretch forth our hands in a posture so as to receive from the Lord.
Lord, we agree with your word. And we just declare together that you are right. And in so many ways in our lives, we're wrong and we're rebellious. And we thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we ask first, Lord, for your forgiveness. Thank you for the cross where there is unending grace and mercy, Lord. Thank you that in the cross there is acceptance. Jesus, in you, we have been adopted and accepted, renewed and washed, restored and redeemed and set right. Thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, you showed me two things in my life I need to deal with. I don't feel condemned. I feel encouraged because you love me. You love me, Lord. And so you've come to me and said, hey, son, let's do a little business, you and me. I want to do business with you, Lord. I pray that there be no condemnation for anybody in this place today. That's from the enemy. I do pray for conviction, though, that we be convicted, that you are absolutely right and now agreeing we want to change. We can't change ourselves. That's a lie. We need you to come and transform our lives. So we ask for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit upon each one that would so ask. Upon each one that would agree that we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come upon us. Come upon us for newness and for victory, for power and strength. And for deliverance, Lord, deliver your people today. You delivered your people, Israel. You stretched forth your righteous right hand. You are faithful and good. There's so many things that we once counted as dear, and now we're just going to count them as lost. We don't boast in chariots or horses anymore, but in the name of our Lord. We trust in you. We believe that you're able to redeem. Pray for the faint and weak in this house today that they would find strength. Pray for the sick that they would find healing. For the jobless that they would find jobs. For the brokenhearted that they would find comfort. For the lonely that they would find friendship. For the rejected that they would find acceptance. For the broken that they would be bound up and renewed. For the oppressed that you would break the bonds of wickedness and the yoke of the oppressor and you'd set them free. Jesus, you are the king, you rule and reign. You are the rock that is everlasting. Prayer team is up here now, church. If you need help, get to them.